If you've been freelancing or running a small business for any amount of time, you've learned a few things you probably wish you knew from the start. Well, in this episode, I've asked a few of my freelancing and business owner friends, as well as Twitter, what's the one thing you wish you knew before you started? And there's a lot of great advice, so let's get to it. But before we get started, I want to tell you about my online membership and community, Creator Courses. I know that when you want to learn something, the natural thing you probably do is go to YouTube or Google, and I do the same thing. I think that's great for one-off projects. I used YouTube very recently uh, to learn how to change a light switch in my house. Uh, But there are lots of videos on every topic, and you end up asking questions like, which one is the best, and who do you trust? What order do you even watch these videos in, and will you get the support that you need? These are all things where YouTube or other potentially free videos fall short. Well, I started Creator Courses a few years ago with the idea of just putting online courses out there into the world for people to take. Last year, I decided to morph it into a membership. So you can become a member and take all of the courses that we have to offer, and uh, they are all included in that membership. And those courses focus on everything from just basic WordPress Uh, to learning how to build a website without code. All of the courses are developed by me, and if you listen regularly, you know that I've been a developer for two decades at this point, and I have lots of experience building websites. I'm a teacher at heart, and I've created courses for LinkedIn Learning and universities like my alma mater, the University of Scranton. On top of the courses, we are also a community and members get access to the forums and Slack and office hours with me. So stop wasting your time hunting and pecking for the right learning resources and tools. Exclusively for listeners of this show, you can save 15% on all memberships, including the lifetime membership. All you have to do is visit creatorcourses.com build. What's one piece of advice you wish you had when you started your business? For me, it's definitely more than one piece of advice. I was lucky to have a mentor, though. Mr. Joe Rizzi owned the deli I worked at in high school and college, reinforcing those New York Italian stereotypes. And we'd talk about my small web design business while we cleaned up after the shop closed. This was before Twitter and podcasts, mostly, and even before Freelance Switch, the first freelance community that I was a part of. These days, you can find scores of advice on freelancing and, sn- and starting a small business. You can ask Twitter or people on other social media platforms. And in this episode, I decided to ask a few of my friends and Twitter followers that very question. And I got some fantastic advice. Uh, this season is going to focus heavily or is focusing heavily on freelancers and small business owners. And so I think it's good to have some of these questions or some of these tidbits, these tips, top of mind as you listen to the rest of the season. So you'll be able to find a link to the original tweet as well as uh, to everyone who answered in the show notes for this episode over at howibuilt.it slash 152. So let's get started with the first piece of advice. It comes from my friend Gene, and here's what he has to say. 
Hi, my name is John with Design Theory, and one of the things that I wish that I knew when I first got started in freelancing that I know now would have been for me to identify the product or service that I know is going to be profitable in a very soon or quick amount of time versus trying to offer a bunch of different products and services and hoping that of all the things that I offer, I'll be able to attract a whole bunch of different clients and be able to service almost everybody. And what uh, I learned, uh, you know, as going through my business was that it kind of drove me crazy because I was doing too many things that were outside of what I was really, really comfortable with, even though I could do these things. Instead, I was not focused on the one thing or maybe the one or two things that I did really, really well that I found that I was better skilled at or better talent, you know, had better talent for. And therefore, niching down on just that product or service and finding the target demographic or the target marketplace for me to offer that product or service, which is what I'm doing now and I feel like I'm much more comfortable with now. And so the risk of going into burnout, the risk of doing things that were outside of my scope and maybe not doing them as adequate or as fast or as efficient as somebody who is much more versed in that in that product or service, now I feel much more comfortable. So that's definitely something that I wish that I learned, that I wish that someone could have told me or I wish that I would have learned when I first got started that uh, would have saved me a whole bunch of time and effort and sleepless nights, if you will. And uh, that's all I have on that one. Thanks. That's definitely a hard one for many freelancers, myself included. But it's important. We've heard the importance of niching down, but focusing on your offering is important too. You want to make sure that you're not spreading yourself too thin, offering too many services, or uh, just offering things that aren't in your wheelhouse. And you want to make sure you're putting the right amount of time into your products or services. Following Gene's advice this year, I'm doubling down on podcasting. Not only how I built it, but services surrounding podcasting. I'm launching my podcast liftoff course, and I'm offering a done-for-you podcast service to help others launch their podcasts. Along with making sure you focus on the right offerings, my good friend Sal has great advice on how to become an authority on those offerings. One piece of advice I wish I'd gotten sooner was that I should blog everything. Every time I figured something out, I should turn it into a blog post. Every time I had to explain something to someone, I should write that explanation as a blog post and point them to that. And I wish I'd known this sooner because when I started doing these things, I found that there were lots of benefits. Writing out that blog post helped me understand the concept better. And then I became a resource for myself. There are lots of times that I need to remember how to do something, and I know I can go to my website and find that information there. Also, at the same time, I could become a resource to others. Other people could find it. And by doing that, I was establishing my reputation. That, in turn, was marketing. Now I'm marketing myself. Either people have already found me, and they want to find out more about me, and they see that I've written all this information, or people find my answers, and then that introduces them to me. Either way, that is helping build my brand and marketing myself. And it sounds like a lot of work, but there were two things that helped me with that. One is to keep in mind, there's a lot of value that I'm getting out of this. But the second one, and I think this is more important, was that I needed to lower the bar to hitting the publish button. A quick blog post is better when it's published than a long blog post that doesn't get published. I'd like to have an image with each of my blog posts. And I don't always do that. But it's better for me to hit that publish button and get that post out 
than to have it sit around while I wait to find that image. So lowering the bar was a big part of that. Um, so the big thing is blog everything. I can't tell you how many times I've referenced my own blog posts or books. Writing down how you did something can be so valuable, not only to others who read your blog, but to you as well, just like Sal said. And lowering the barrier for publishing, fantastic. Next time you have a thought, just blog it. That's something that former guest Colin DeVrew also talked about. He has a lot of advice on blogging, uh, and I will link his episode in the show notes as well. This episode is brought to you by SaneBox. If you ask me to name the single biggest workplace time waster, I don't even have to think about it. The answer is email. In fact, a recent study found that almost 50% of the time managers spend tending to their inboxes is spent on emails that should have never been sent to them or that they didn't need to answer. But what if you could press a magic button and never see those time-wasting emails again? Well, that's exactly what SaneBox does. With just a few clicks, SaneBox automatically gets your email under control and filters out all the messages that don't need your focus. And you don't even have to switch email apps because it works in concert with whichever email client you already use. I've been using SaneBox for a few months now, and I immediately saw big changes in the way I manage my email. I no longer get distracted by every little thing that comes into the inbox. I only see the important stuff until I choose to look at other folders. It also has some nifty features like the Sane Black Hole, where you can vanquish senders you never want to hear from again. I am unapologetic about that button. Plus, I created my own called Sane Money, where all online orders and banking info goes. So if I need to check in on something I ordered or need to get a tracking number or the latest bank statement, I know exactly where to go. See how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com slash HowIBuilt today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's SaneBox, S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash HowIBuilt. That's built with a T. Thanks to SaneBox for supporting this show. And now... Let's get back to it. Moving away from general advice, let's hear something from Topher DeRozier that everyone needs to hear. Before I went freelance full-time, my regular rate was 65 an hour. When I made the decision to go freelance full-time, I thought I'd better boost this if I'm going to really try to make a living off it. So I went up to 75 an hour. And it was only about four months before I realized that to really pay the bills and live a normal life, I needed to be at a hundred an hour. But by that point, I'd already started working with a number of clients and changing the rate was awkward. I did it. I didn't lose anybody, but it was awkward. It would have been much better for me to do the research and more than research because I did some research. It would have been better to have more conversations with people who were making a living as freelancers and set a good high rate at the beginning so that you don't have to go back to your existing clients and say, hey, I'm going to raise my rates. And this is different from uh, a normal raising of rates 
annually or something like that for standard of living. Uh, it's, I have a policy now. I raise my rates at the beginning of every new year. It's usually not very much and they don't really care. But that first one where I made the mistake and I needed to raise it substantially was painful. So do your research, talk to a lot of people, and at the beginning, set a relatively high rate so that you don't have to go back to them and say, ah, you know, I'm sorry, I have to charge you more now. Raise your rates. When you first started, you were almost definitely undercharging. You might still be. This was one of the first lessons that Mr. Rizzi taught me at the deli. He said, Joey, you do good work, right? Then your prices should reflect that. The right people are willing to pay the right price for quality work. And not everyone is looking for a bargain. As you talk to more potential clients, you will learn that. And in an upcoming episode, Nathan Ingram tells us, all about how to talk to and screen potential clients. And speaking of screening clients and the sales process, now seems like a great time to hear from Birgit Polly Hack. On Twitter, Joe Casabono asked uh, freelancers, what's one piece of advice you wish you had when you started out? My reply was, if the communication during the client acquisition process is high, it'll get worse after you make the sale plan for it. Now, during my early years in business, I connected with some potential clients, small business site owners who had a lot of questions before they made a decision about who to hire for their project. And I spent quite some time answering, hoping that if I explained everything in detail, I would earn their trust and they would hire me. Sometimes that was the case and sometimes it wasn't. I also attributed this time spent on back-and-forth communication to the cost of doing business and part of the client acquisition process. My intention was when I explained everything up front, I would have fewer interruptions while working on the project. And working on the site wouldn't take as long. But that's not the reality of it. The number of emails and voice messages actually increased once we started working on the project. I kept timesheets down to a quarter of an hour, and my contract stated that time spent on support and Q&A emails are, among other things, billable hours. My standard project management line item, in my estimates, just wasn't enough to take care of the additional amount of communication required. The site owners weren't particularly pleased that the site cost so much more than what I originally estimated. I did get paid, but blowing past the budget total wasn't a good outcome, no matter how brilliant the site turned out to be. In comparing estimated hours versus real hours over a few projects, I found that getting through the communication process sometimes took as much time or more than the actual work I was hired to do. So after a while, I was able to recognize the particular pattern of behavior upfront. For future high communication clients, I considerably increased my estimate for project management to reflect their communication style. Now, it was a win-win situation. The client received all the answers and I was on budget again. We created a great site, exactly what the client wanted, and we both were happy. And that's the story behind my early yeah, freelance advice. 
My name is Birgit Polyhag, and I'm the publisher of the Gutenberg Times and co-host on the Gutenberg Changelog podcast with Mark Urain. Joe, thank you so much for having me. All the best to your listeners, and goodbye. This was a hard lesson for me. I thought free consultation was something that carried throughout the project and that I should only charge for the website that I made, uh, that I should only be charging for the hard work of writing code or designing a website. But there are some clients who will take advantage of that. I had one who would call me daily and he'd keep me on the phone for at least an hour each time. When I told him I was going to start charging for these calls, they stopped and pithy emails replaced them. But there are some clients who just need a lot of hand-holding, and that's okay. But as Birgit said, you should be aware of that and charge appropriately. There's also a hidden tip in Birgit's advice. Time track. You should know where your time is going, especially when you're starting out. If you don't know how much time you're spending on certain aspects of a project, you will never be able to accurately put together a quote. And accurate quotes are important. I use Toggle and a fantastic iOS app called Timery. Timery integrates with Siri shortcuts so I can prompt Siri to start a timer or have a timer automatically start when I do something like open an app or scan an NFC tag. This has been hugely helpful in helping me uh, time track. I've never been good at it, but Timery reduces the resistance necessary or time tracking. And related to what Birgit said and rounding out the audio advice is Jonathan Bossinger. One piece of advice that I wish I had when I started out as a freelancer is to always expect the unexpected. Um, projects very rarely go the way you expect them to. There might be some piece of information that you don't have, something that you missed, or a hurdle implementing some piece of functionality or some external library, or even just a lengthy testing process that you expected to take an amount of time and takes three times the amount of time. Um, Always always prepare for the unexpected. Um, I found the best way to, to learn to work around this is to monitor the time spent on the different aspects of the project and see where the unexpected things happen and how much time I end up spending on unexpected and then factor that in the next time around. Um, A good rule of thumb is to start with something like 30%. So assume that 30% of your time is going to be, or at least an additional 30% of of whatever you estimate is going to be needed. So if you think something's going to take an hour, add another 30% to that. Um, Inevitably, I found that doing that, I end up... More often than not, I end up in a situation where I estimate correctly as opposed to incorrectly. Um, And a good way to to isolate that, as I say, is to measure your time, measure what you're doing, measure the unexpected times, and see how much of the project you actually thought was right and how much you ended up doing things you weren't expecting. Expect the unexpected is something I was taught early on in my college career. Projects seldom go as planned, especially when they get to a certain size. Jonathan recommends building an extra 30% in for unknowns. I might go even higher than that, depending on the project and the client. But his advice is really sound. There's always going to be things that you don't expect. So remember to create a buffer. 
for that. Now, before we get into the Twitter advice, I again want to thank Gene, Nassal, Topher, Birgit, and Jonathan for sending in their audio. I appreciate them taking the time to record a few minutes of valuable advice for us. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. Do you remember when you started your small business? It was no small feat. It took lots of late nights, early mornings, and the occasional all-nighter. Bottom line, you've been insanely busy ever since. So why not make things easier? Well, my friends at FreshBooks have the solution. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners. It's simple, intuitive, and keeps you way more organized than a dusty shoebox filled with crumbled receipts. As a side note, I actually told my accountant the first time that I used the shoebox method and his face turned white. But in actuality, FreshBooks was one of the first things I bought when I started my business. I've been a FreshBooks user since 2009. It's easily the best accounting and invoice software for small business owners like us. Create and send professional-looking invoices in 30 seconds, and then get them paid two times faster with automated online payments. Nothing is better than sending out an invoice and getting it paid in the same day. That's happened for me with FreshBooks. You can also file expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. And the best part is that FreshBooks grows alongside your business. So you'll always have the tools you need when you need them, without ever having to learn the ins and outs of accounting. Now, there are a lot of features on this list I have here to talk about, but I'm going to pick two of my favorites. The first is late payment reminders. They are clutch. It's one less thing that I need to worry about when making sure I get paid. I don't have to keep track of exactly when I sent the invoice. And if I already sent a follow-up email or whether or not they viewed the email, all of that is taken care of inside FreshBooks. The other feature I really like is the automated expenses. I connect my business credit card to FreshBooks and my expenses automatically get imported. They are all there, ready for me and my accountant to review. It makes tax time easier for both of us. And it's no secret that I love automation and these two features make my life a lot easier. After doing things by hand, FreshBooks is worth the price of admission just for those two things. So join the 24 million people who have used FreshBooks. You can try it for 30 days for free. No catch, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash built it and enter how I built it in the how did you hear about us section to get started. That's freshbooks.com slash built it. That's built with a T. Thanks so much to FreshBooks for supporting the show. And now let's get back to it. Looking to Twitter, uh, and you can find the whole thread over at howibuilt.it slash 152. There's advice that reinforces what we've already learned, but I want to call out a few gems. Kim Coleman says to make sure to get all of the content up front. This is a best web design practice, as in uh, you can't make a good website without knowing the content that you're designing for. But it also will make the project go much more smoothly. It could prevent the project from stalling and put less pressure on you. If you say, I can't get started until I have all the content. I've been in a situation where I did everything I could without the content. 
the client takes two months to get me the content or more. And then as soon as they give me the client, they're like, so when is the site going to be ready? Getting all of the content up front means that you're not relying on other people to schedule out your time. And that's really important. Uh, Michelle Franchette, I'm sorry, Michelle, if I just said your last name wrong, uh, says that there are things you should invest in and things that you can skimp on. Know the difference. I love this advice. Uh, as a matter of fact, over on my blog this week, there's a post about two things freelancers should definitely invest in no matter when they are starting. Uh, I'll just add that running a business is easier and more affordable than ever. To give you some real numbers, my annual recurring expenses total around uh, five to $7,000. Uh, and I spent a bit more on that uh, for equipment in 2019. But let's just say I have between ten dollars and $15,000 in total expenses per year on average. I make a lot more than that. So invest in what you need to and don't cheap out on that stuff. Sure, you can probably go without paying for that lifetime subscription right now or the annual subscription and just pay an extra couple of bucks monthly if you can't afford, you know, Zapier for a whole year or something like that. But don't just find a free contract online. Uh, get a vetted contract uh, and have your lawyer look over it or have a lawyer write you a contract from scratch. That's going to be a lot more expensive. I recommend having like a boilerplate that your lawyer can um, modify. That's always worked for me. I'm not a lawyer, but that has, that's been something that works for me. Uh, and the same thing goes with something like an accountant, right? A lot of my expenses go to professional services like that. And my accountant uh, saved me $10,000 that I would have otherwise had to pay in taxes. So that investment was well worth it. Uh, Dave Sharon offers advice uh, to piggyback off of jeans, which is it's okay to change your niche if it's not working out. And I've done that a few times, right? I thought of offering premium WordPress websites for people getting married, right? So like premium wedding websites. I thought that was a great niche because people are already spending a bunch of money on their wedding anyway. What's uh, maybe an extra $500 or $1,000? to get a really nice looking website. What I did not realize was that because they were spending a lot of money, they didn't want to drop a grand on a website that to them was very, very temporary, right? Not everybody looks at websites the same way I do. Um, my wedding website is still up for posterity, uh, but they weren't willing to drop that kind of money on something like that. They would rather spend that money on something better for their wedding. I didn't realize that. What I should have focused on was websites for people in the wedding industry, something uh, similar to what former guest Sarah Dunn is doing now. So those were the big pieces of advice I wanted to call out. In no particular order, here are other common pieces of advice that people wrote in. Set boundaries with your clients. This is so, 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 so important. Don't let them call you at all hours. Don't give them your cell phone number. Get a Google voice number. Um, and make sure that they know when you work and that you are not available 24-7. It's okay to say no to projects. This is a hard one to learn, especially if you feel like the uh, coffers are getting a little thin. Uh, you might be more willing to just take on any project. But it's okay to say no to projects. 
uh, if it's not a good fit for you, if you don't think you're a good fit for the client, or you just don't have the bandwidth right now, um, then say no. Uh, and similarly, don't take cheap projects just for the experience. Again, it might be tempting if you uh, if if money doesn't look like it's coming in or you can see kind of the end of the tunnel and you're not sure where your next paycheck is going to come from. But cheap projects are going to cost you a lot more in the long run. Uh, on that last note, uh, I would add that it's okay to charge just for the learning curve. Um, just be upfront with your clients. So if you don't know exactly how to do something, um, don't learn it for free just because you've never done it before. You're not going to know everything and they are paying for you to solve their problem. You don't necessarily know every solution. You just need to know that this, there is a solution and, and part of your job is to find it. As for the way I would answer this question, my advice it's something I've been preaching for a couple of years now. Build your list. It's not just for selling products. Your mailing list is not just for selling products. It's for sending out advice, notifying your members of new services, and keeping relationships with your clients and potential clients. Your mailing list can be the life's blood of your business if you do it right. So follow Sal's advice to blog more. And at the end of each blog post, have an opt-in to join your mailing list. Build your mailing list and then nurture it with good advice. This season has several episodes dedicated to that very topic. So be sure to stay tuned. Thanks so much to everyone who wrote in or recorded their advice. Now it's your turn. Write in and let me know what your favorite piece of advice was. Let me know on Twitter. I'm at Jay Casabona, or use the hashtag AskHibi. That's Ask H-I-B-I. You can find all of the show notes at howibuilt.it slash 152. Thanks to our sponsors for this week, SaneBox and FreshBooks. Both of these tools could be advice all on their own. Manage your time and your money better with these two fantastic tools and really take your business to the next level with them. Uh, if you liked this episode, be sure to leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to get notified as soon as new episodes come out. If you want to learn more about my membership, Creator Courses, you can get a free PDF of five tools to help you build websites faster. You can find that over on the show notes page. Again, that's howibuilt.it slash 152. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, get out there and build something.